So we've been asking one really basic question for a while now, and we've been looking at one text for a while now. The question is, what is the church? Like if we sort of strip away some of our recent experiences or expectations, and we just try to get back to the heart and the center of that question, what is the church? And then to answer that question, we've been looking at one text the whole time for a while now, which is the book of Acts. Sometimes it's called the Acts of the Apostles. This is in the New Testament, in the Bible. This is right after the stories of Jesus and his time on earth. This is the story of what happens right after that. When the people around Jesus who followed Jesus, they keep discovering that what was going on in Jesus is also going to happen in them and through them. And we keep seeing this played out over and over again. We just keep seeing all these ways that the book of Acts is telling us the church is nothing more and nothing less than the expansion of what Jesus was doing in the world. And it's not something that we do on our own power. It's not something that we just sort of muscle our way through. It's actually God doing it through the church the way God was doing it through his son, Jesus. And it's us surrendering to it and sacrificing for it, but knowing that it's not just our strength, our power, our sacrifice that makes it happen. It's us opening ourselves up to that reality and letting it expand in the world, right? And I don't know about you, but there's times in, the, in these months that we've been going through the book of Acts that I've been really inspired and encouraged by that story. There's been times when I'm honestly really convicted. So I'm a guy that like grew up in church and, and my entire adult life I've actually drawn my employment from churches. I've been a part of like the church thing for a long time and there's been moments when I've been really convicted that not that what I've been a part of was contrary to what I saw in that story perhaps, but often that there, there was like maybe a pretty big gap or maybe the things that were most emphasized in my church experience don't seem to be the things that are most emphasized in that story as Jesus sort of grows out into the world. And we're going to keep talking about that tonight. Uh, particularly, one of the things that I just can't get away from as we keep looking at the story is that the, the church early on, there's so much action in making sure that, that we relate to each other really well. Like making sure that we care for each other and love one another and making sure that if there's something between you and me, whether it's personal or theological or political or racial or whatever, if there's something between you and me, like what God is doing has to overcome that because the church has to be the place where the things between us get torn away and the bridges get built and we invite each other into that kind of community. I just, it's there a lot, you know? And we're going to talk about that a little more today and we're going to take a turn tonight that I'm really looking forward to. But first, uh, if you've got those little inserts in your program, you'll see we've just got a couple of verses from the book of Acts tonight. Uh, really, like very simple, very quick. We're just going to hit these for a moment and then turn to the, the, the highlight of the night. But you'll see there, uh, so this is, we, we turn, the action in the book of Acts, there's a season where it's all in Jerusalem, which is where the, where the Jewish people have their headquarters, right? I mean, this is the centerpiece of the action of God's people in the world. But it starts expanding out from that, which is exactly what Jesus said would happen as they follow him into the world. And one of the other places where there's a lot of action is Antioch, which is another location. This is in, this is north of Jerusalem along the Mediterranean Sea, modern-day Syria, actually, like on the coast there. And uh, th there's this one little line that just strikes me so much. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. All right, let's go home. No, I'm sorry, there's a lot there. First of all, it's interesting um, that the Christians didn't choose the word Christian for themselves. They didn't, like, make shirts with, like, their team logo on it. We're the Christians. It actually got slapped onto them by outsiders from their movement. And so we see three instances of this word in the New Testament. That's it. Three times in the New Testament. And it always seems to be that other people are calling these people Christians. 
There's other words for them like followers of the way, the way of Jesus. That seems to be language that they use for themselves. But as, as the people around the, the followers of Jesus are observing the followers of Jesus and trying to figure out, like, what is this thing? Like, is it just a new Jewish sect? Is it, you know, right alongside the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and all these different Jewish movements, different ways of being Jewish? But of course, what was really going on was something bigger than here's how to be Jewish. What was really going on was here's how to be human, which is an invitation to everybody, right? And so it starts moving outward and starts bringing more people in and people around it, they're watching it. And it's like they don't know what to do with this group but they're just struck by how connected they are to the Christ, the Jesus. And so they just take Christ, the leader they keep talking about and following and trying to live in the path of, and they like add a little suffix to it and they get a word for them, right? And it's almost like kind of making fun of them. Like, oh, that's cute. Look at all the little mini Christs. Like, look at all the, you know, people who like don't have anything better to do with their time than listen to the words of this rabbi and, and try to do what he said. That's how the word first shows up there. They were first called Christians at Antioch. And so in Antioch, like everywhere else they go, what's going on in Jesus, the Christ, is expanding through what's going on in these people, right? Well, a little later, this is Acts chapter 13. There's a bit of a description of the church at Antioch. And I want to draw your attention here. This is 13.1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And that's one of those lists in the Bible that's really easy to just read right by. It's like, okay, great. So that's, that's like the roll call for the elder meeting? I don't know. Like, who cares, right? But there's a lot going on here. Like, for example, right here, you've got five leaders with four nationalities from three different continents leading the church. That's a big deal. Five leaders from different nationalities, different continents all coming together. You've got, um, you've got a lot of diversity in that little leadership group. And we should, we should pay attention to the fact that that wouldn't have happened like easily or naturally. This seems to be like that God is doing something, that, that when God starts sort of leading the church to swim upstream, to, to go where nobody else is going, to be human in a way that nobody else is being human, it seems that one of the things that happens is different kinds of people keep coming together. Different kinds of people keep being called into this together. Now, Antioch is a, a big, bustling city at this point. So one thing we can know, this is like one of the top three cities in the Roman Empire. So you would have had Rome as obviously like the big, bustling, important city, the head of power and economics and all that. You would have had Alexandria, another really important city in the Roman Empire. And you would have had Antioch, a big, bustling, important city in the Roman Empire. A lot of Jews there who were the first followers of Jesus, but a lot of other people too. So like I wonder, for example, if one of the things going on here is that for the church to be what the church is to be, it's got to be a great place for everyone. And they're in a place with lots of different kinds of people from lots of different places, different races, different nationalities, different cultural backgrounds. And if you're in a place where all the people around you that God's calling you to love and welcome have all that diverse background, then maybe the church also needs to sort of lift up that kind of diversity. Maybe that's really, really important, right? Now, we've said for South Bend City Church, we think we need to be diverse like the city. And we say like the city for a very important reason, because this isn't abstract for us. It's because we actually look at the city of South Bend, and we, we see a city that's a lot more diverse than the room that you and I are in right now. And we don't like say that to beat ourselves up or anything like that. This isn't meant to just like chastise us, but it's just to say that this is one of the many ways that where we are and where we feel called to, there's a bit of a gap there, right? And so in the next weeks, months, years, we need to keep growing into, need to keep becoming 
a fuller expression of what Jesus' movement looks like. And one of the ways that we think that has to happen is to grow in diversity. There's also this, though. It's not just that it's good for welcome, right? But we've seen all through human history, and especially in the United States, we've seen that racial lines also tend to be the fault lines upon which injustice lands, right? I mean, that's just really obvious in our history. But if you're looking for places where the world really breaks, if you're looking for places where the world really disintegrates, where the world is far from peace and grace, if you're looking for that, one of the places you look to find it is where there are racial lines, right? And so if the church isn't just called to offer a welcome, but if we're called in some small local way to to be part of God putting things back together, then surely one of the things that God wants to put back together through South Bend City Church is, is the way that different people with different skin color and different backgrounds come together and find peace with one another. I mean like rich peace, like loving community with one another, celebrating all of that. Right? I mean, that's a, that's a big part of our heartbeat as a church, and it's something that we really, we, we know that we need to grow into. Now, there's, uh, this is, there's a bit of Christian history that I find really interesting. I just stumbled across this. Uh, a woman named Lisa Sharon Harper wrote a profound book called The Very Good Gospel. And it's about how the gospel of Jesus, she, she came to a point in her life where the gospel she'd been handed was too small. And it didn't have much to say to all the broken places in the world, especially places of injustice and racial division. And so she sort of went on a life journey to discover a bigger, deeper, richer gospel. And in the book, she tells the story of uh, Charles Finney. Now, if you haven't heard of Charles Finney, this is a revival preacher back in the 1800s. This is, uh, this is sort of the beginnings of what we call the evangelical Christian movement in America. So this guy's traveling around, throwing big, like, tent revivals, 1800s style. I, I can imagine what they're like. They, they probably, a lot of us, we'd probably look at them like they're a little goofy, you know? But this was this like white-hot movement that was sweeping through North America, and he had these big old revival meetings. And get this, Charles Finney invented the altar call. This is a true story. Like, it's not in the book of Acts. I don't know if you knew that, but like when the organist plays and he says, everybody come on down if you want to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, that's not in the book of Acts. Charles Finney invents that technique, that way of getting groups of people together. And I'm, I don't say that to disparage it. I'm just saying that way of gathering, that way of responding, that way of helping people encounter Jesus, he came up with this, the big old altar call moment. Now, it's interesting to me that Charles Finney, like his, his version of Christianity, his way of preaching and living that out, like that would resonate with like a ton of Christians today, especially depending on what kind of Christian you call yourself or what kind of church experience you've had or where you came from. But, but, but there's something else going on in Finney's movement that seems to come from like another part of Christianity today because these things get divided in the world. You know, There's like liberal Christians and conservative Christians and social justice Christians and personal faith Christians and all that. But in Finney's ministry, stuff gets held together in a surprising way. So what's going on then? It's the 1800s. Well, uh, the slave trade had been abolished. So there was no longer slave trade between Africa and the United States. But slavery was still happening in the United States. And what strikes me is kind of a, a cruel turn, like a really dark turn. Slave owners just realized, if I can't get it from Africa, I'll just breed them. And so after the slave trade is abolished, we go from 700,000 slaves in the United States in 1790 to 4 million in 1860. That's 70 years we go from 700,000 slaves to 4 million slaves. 
And in the middle of that rampant growth of slavery in the United States, Charles Finney is going around talking about Jesus and inviting people to come forward in an altar call moment and give their heart to Jesus. But check this out. Here's what he does. If you go forward at a Charles Finney altar call at one of his revivals, you come down, you kneel up front, maybe you cry a little bit, you raise your hand, you say a prayer with someone, you accept Jesus into your heart, and the next thing they do, they hand you a pen and invite you to sign up for the abolitionist movement to get rid of slavery. In one moment, right there, they say, oh, this thing that God is doing in your heart, you can't disconnect it from the world around you. This, this personal encounter of the grace of God and the love of God, that's connected to the ways that we resist the things that are broken in the world around us. It's, it's all held together there in that movement. Isn't that interesting? Uh, I, I find that different from some of the expressions of Christian faith we see in the world today, but I find it really, really resonant with what the church looks like in the book of Acts. That it's all connected. The grace of God, the inclusion of God, that, that your heart is, is, is welcomed and changed, and that we look around the world and we say, wherever something's broken, we carry a burden for that. We want to do something about it. And even if we can't fix everything in the world, right, because we are only human, we can't change everything overnight, we can at least decide that our family, our community here, will keep striving toward a fuller justice, right? A more beautiful, more full picture of what the kingdom of God looks like in flesh and blood. And part of that is that different skin color, different racial experiences all come together in the church. I raise all of that because this week uh, we, we marked something as a country, uh, Martin Luther King uh, Day on Monday. And I gotta be honest with you, I don't know about your experience, but mine growing up, I'm just being really transparent, my experience of Martin Luther King Day was a day off from school. It didn't have a lot of emotional import to me. It didn't, didn't really mean a lot to me. I'll be really honest about that. And even now, I feel like I'm just barely starting to understand why it would be such an important day for our community and for the black community. And so, uh, so here's what we're doing today. We're inviting um, a prominent voice in our community to educate us a little bit. Uh, so Angela Logan, will you come on up here, please? Thank you. There's, there's a mic for you right there. You guys want to welcome Angela? Yeah. Many of you know Angela. Uh, she often delivers scripture readings and prayers for us as a church, which, like, we really, really, really like it when Angela does the reading. What you might not know is that Angela Logan, tonight she's Dr. Logan because she carries her earned PhD. Uh, Angela is the Associate Director of Operations for Nonprofit Professional Development in the Mendoza College of Business at the University of Notre Dame. Is that right? Get it, yeah. Uh, you work with the Masters of Nonprofit Administration program. You, uh, my understanding is that if you want to graduate, you got to go through you. Absolutely. <laughs> That's right. You have a PhD in Philanthropic Studies from IU's Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. Check? Mm -hmm. Check. Awesome. And, um, and here's what I really love about Angela. When we announced that we were launching the church, Angela emailed me, and she just said, hey, I heard that one of your goals is diverse like the city. Can I help? <laughs> I was like, please, you know? So, so we started, we've been hanging out. We've gotten coffee. We've talked many times. She's been helping our staff leadership think more about what it would mean to be a church that takes diversity seriously. And what I so love is I get to be completely ignorant, and she never throws it in my face. I can ask all the questions. Like, I'm a white dude. I don't have a ton of black friends. I'm just being honest, right? I don't, I don't know a lot of things that I should learn to be a more effective leader for our community and just to be a, um, a person who's personally invested in some of this reconciliation. So, Angela, thank you for that. You are very welcome. And we asked Angela, if, just like straight up, if you would educate us a little bit today about uh, why MLK Day would, would matter as much as it matters, what it feels like, um, 
and just like kind of like get through that. So maybe we'll start here. Can you tell us a little bit about like early memories of MLK in your family, your life, your community? So um, probably some of the earliest memories for me, or I would actually honestly say there was never a time where Dr. King wasn't a part of my experience. Something sort of um, humorous is that in the African-American church, the fans that you get in church on one side is usually a description of the funeral home. It's like a, pap a paper fan. A paper fan. Like, yeah, yeah, cool. paper fan. Uh -huh. So on one side is a funeral home and on the other side is Dr. King. So that's, <laughs> you experience Dr. King very early on. But for me and my family, Dr. King was a part of my experience because my mother actually grew up and came of age in Montgomery, or just outside of Montgomery, Alabama, during the height of the Civil Rights era. Mm -hmm. So my mother actually went to segregated schools in Montgomery. She participated in a sit-in, mm -hmm. depending on the family history. She may or may not have gotten arrested, it just depends. <laughs> and then she moved up north, actually, to help integrate the schools in mm -hmm. Ohio, and that's how she met my father. Mm -hmm. And so Dr. King was always just a part of our family experience and a part of the conversation because she was a contemporary of his. She understood that she was literally in Montgomery when he was there. So that we, was always significant for, for me. Yeah. When you um, read about, hear about the kind of resistance and discrimination that King and his movement faced, um, when you read about that, is that like hard to imagine that world? Or is it like, no, you've lived in America as a black woman and you've had experiences with that? Yes, to both. So it's a different type of experience because let's all be honest and realize that for some of us in this room, during our lifetimes, we couldn't have imagined not, um, there was a time in our lives where this very conversation could not have happened. Me being in this room was not something that would have happened. And so that is just the reality of the history of our country. And so there were these larger issues or instances of segregation that were very rampant. We had segregated schools, employment, drinking fountains, restrooms. For those of you who have seen the movie Hidden Figures, you know the importance of, or the significance of, uh, segregated restrooms. And so there's that experience, but then there's also the experience of being someone who is a generation removed from the civil rights era. And so I went to, I went to integrated schools. But unlike my mother, the first black teacher I had was my senior year in college. Mm. And so that was a very different experience for me. Growing up, I grew up in a very solidly middle class experience like most of you all in here. So 13 years of Catholic education because my mother worked outside of the home and that's where the all day kindergarten was, was the Catholic school. And so I had a very sort of integrated life and experience but there were things that I still had to experience, I still went through that were segregated. So it may not have been um, segregated lunch counters, but I was the only person in the honors classes who looked like me. I was the only person in my doctoral cohort who looked like me. I am still to this day the only African-American woman to, earn, to have earned a PhD in philanthropic studies in 2017. And so there are different types of experiences of discrimination and oppression that I face. It's not the same kind of blatant things that may have happened in my mother's generation, but they're still pretty significant. Yeah. Um, as I was reading Dr. King a lot in the last week or so, I was reading some speeches and some letters of his. I was struck by how explicitly and how regularly he refers to Jesus and, and, and Jesus' ethic. Like, it, it's not like it's on the periphery, it struck me. 
that like what I the more I read the the more I got the impression that um, that Dr. King was saying, among other things, this is what it looks like for us to follow Jesus in the face of all of this really really wretched discrimination and hate. Um, and I thought of um, in a in a kind of a weird analogy for me. I thought about there's been times in my life where following Jesus was either hard or confusing. Like either to be faithful to Jesus was just hard, or it was confusing because I wasn't sure what it would look like in a particular circumstance. And over and over again in my life, then, then the move is to, to look for somebody sort of between me and Jesus, like a mentor, maybe from a distance, maybe just somebody I follow, maybe just a, a voice, a writer, a speaker, a leader. But there's something about their circumstance that's similar to mine. And, and, and seeing how they apply Jesus in that circumstance helps me figure out how to do it in my life. And it struck me that maybe that's a little bit of what it's like for a follower of Jesus who's black to look at Dr. King. Absolutely. So Dr. King had this incredible peace and wisdom, and he always kind of focused on, he was at his core and at his root, a, a preacher first. Mm -hmm. He was a Christian and a preacher, and so he would often use his faith to lead, guide, and direct him through how he um, operated in a very segregated, very difficult situation. When some of his um, most prominent, most powerful speeches were from the pulpit. Mm -hmm. And so it was just, in fact, his last speech that he gave before he died, um, um, going to the mountaintop, it was actually in a church the night before he passed away. And so he really um, rested and relied on his faith. And that's important to kind of use as that experience and that backdrop to think about how do, comparing the um, struggles that Christ felt with, uh, dealt with, he was perfect and yet he had to deal with um, trauma. So what do we learn from the example of Christ? How do we mm. learn from Dr. King's example of turning the other cheek, of resisting and being strong and always being convinced of the fact that it's always the right time to do what's right. Mm. And so it's important to pay attention to those things regardless of what's going on around you, regardless of the opposition that you might face, it's always right to do what's right. Mm. I was uh, also, as I've been watching and listening, I, I was convicted because I think my first thought about Dr. King's example of following Jesus in the midst of all that hate, the first thought it's easy for me is like what he didn't do. He didn't lash out back at them. He didn't return violence with violence. But in some ways, I think like for a guy like me, a white guy in America who's never suffered any kind of discrimination, who's never like personally felt what that feels like, it's easy for me to like focus on what he didn't do but not be convicted by what he did do, which is a really active and focused resistance and like a very prophetic voice that stands up and says no. And often I read in Dr. King's writings and, and speeches that the white moderates were one of the problems, right? He doesn't just come out, it's not just the KKK that's the problem. It's the white moderates who have power and privilege and a voice in the platform, but for whom it was really convenient, I guess, to just sort of step eh, back, right? We're good. Yeah. And it's the whole notion of um, not, th that he actually said in the letter, to, letter from the Birmingham jail that the white moderate was the biggest challenge for mm. black progress in that they were comfortable with the status quo. Mm. And it's easier to not resist and not put up a fuss. What is all of this going on about? It'll mm -hmm. be fine. Mm -hmm. And just really, that was some of the bigger struggles. And what's interesting is um, growing up, one of the things my mom used to always say to me is that 
on some level she appreciated life in the south versus life in the north hmm. and i and i didn't really i would push her on that and she would say well that was because in the south you knew who was for you and who was against you mm. and it was a very clear distinction hmm. whereas in the north they could smile in your face and then have um, yeah. a little go to a little gathering in the evening with some um, um, white um, clothing on the outside. So it was never no, you were never really clear about who was on your side. And so I never really got that until I moved to the South, and then I understood it. Yeah, wow. And I remember one of our first times that we got together to talk about church and diversity and all that. I was, I was, I was, I was like, I'm not sure. Are you allowed to ask this question? But, I, but part of the part of the problem, I think, is like. There's a lot of questions we're afraid to ask, and then we're not making any progress, right? And I'm so grateful that you just were like, there's no question too stupid. I'm not sure if you actually said that, because I offered some really stupid questions. But I remember asking you, what's it like to be a black woman in a white church? You remember that? I, I do, but I don't remember what I said. Okay. <laughs> well, let me, let me offer that question anew. Um, so there are moments where I feel at home, where I feel comfortable, where... I feel welcomed and embraced, and then there are moments that I look around and go, oh, okay, this is an interesting experience, and I feel as part of why I am here is that I believe God has placed me here for such a time as this, for to have these conversations, because if I was not here, would we necessarily have this conversation? Would mm -hmm. South Bend City Church have this conversation at this moment in time? Yeah. And so I kind of get past my own feelings of discomfort sometimes and just push past, like, okay, we can do this, God. Mm. We're good. Well, and to, to that point, um, so there, the week that, uh, we had a really rough week in our country not too long ago where um, we had seen two different black men sh shot by police officers and there was video. And we'd also seen uh, five white Dallas police officers shot by a sniper. It was just a really painful, violent week. And that was a week for me where, you know, we all have Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we all have channels and platforms. And my typical MO is to like step back because I don't want to say something stupid. And I think I, these are moments when I have a lot to learn. And when you have a lot to learn, shut up. That's kind of my, my general feeling, right? But Angela was the one who emailed me, and I, and I so appreciate this. And it was very kind and warm, but I just heard from you, hey, some of us need to hear from you right now, you know? And so we put a little video uh, online that week. Um, but that's just one of a billion examples where I know we're not going to get there without help, without, like, learning and listening, you know? So I'm so grateful that we have you doing that. You're welcome. And one of the, th I think, I do remember saying in that email that silence is deafening. Yeah. And so even if you are people of, if we are good people of good character, good faith, mm -hmm. but we stand in silence in the oppression, we can all hear that, and mm -hmm. that speaks louder than words. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, well how about this? If, if, uh, so you grew up in black church. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, mean, I can do a little call and response on y'all if y'all need come to. Come on, come on. Can I get an amen? There we go. I've asked for amens in my sermons, and you guys don't give me anything. Thank you. That's, I see how it is. They like me better. I see how it is. <laughs> or I'm looking to you for the amen next okay, time I next, need it. Okay, next, there it okay? is. That's good. So, um, so how about this? Let's say on Sunday, we'd been in one of the churches that you grew up in. It's the day before Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Um, I've grown up in white churches where that Sunday was unlike, or I'm sorry, was just like every other Sunday, and there's kind of no mention of it. I have a feeling if we'd been in like a church you grew up in, we would have heard something about it that day. Yes, Lord. So there would have been at least three to four 
songs from the movement. So mm -hmm. we would have sung um, Lift Every Voice and Sing. Mm -hmm. We would have um, joined in We Shall Overcome. Mm -hmm. We would have probably sung one more song, um, Been to the Mountaintop. Mm -hmm. There would have been some lovely little darling eight-year-old who was scared out of his <laughs> mind in a little bow tie and suit giving his rendition of I Have a Dream. <laughs> and then the pastor would have gotten up and spoken about the fierce urgency of now mm -hmm. and how we need to be double down on our efforts to be committed mm -hmm. to justice, to equity, to faith for all, not just for um, ourselves, but for the least of these. Mm -hmm. And there would have been a rousing, there would have been an altar call, there wouldn't have been altar any, call. Altar call would have been phenomenal, it'd have been great. <laughs> Wouldn't have signed up for the abolitionist no, movement? No, not non-abolitionist movement, but they pro we probably would have signed up for the mentoring program. Okay. Because it would have been to each one reach one, mentor, mm -hmm. help one of the babies along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Amen. That's what I'm talking about. I'm looking at you guys next week. There you go. That's awesome. Um, I, 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 um, I found this when I was looking through some of Dr. King's uh, writing and speaking. Uh, he said, before I was a civil rights leader, I was a preacher of the gospel. This was my first calling, and it still remains my greatest commitment. All that I do in civil rights, I do because I consider it a part of my ministry. Um, what I really wonder, Angela, is we keep having this conversation about what is a church and saying it's an expansion of Jesus in the world. And I, I wonder, like, when you hear that, what do you hear? Like, do you hear hopefulness? Do you hear, what do you hear when we talk about that, specifically the lens of your experience as a black woman in America? And I know that you don't speak for all the black people in America. You don't have a club meeting every Tuesday. We actually did have a meeting last night, and so this is what we decided. So the views expressed here are everybody's. We, we took a poll. All of black if it, America. If, awesome. they told, if anybody tells you any differently, they lied because they weren't on the call. <laughs> what, do you, what do you hear uh, when you hear us talk about that? I have hope that we will get there. So one of the other things that Dr. King is famous for saying is that the most segregated hour in America mm -hmm. is at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. And it's true, you can go to any congregation across this nation and it's a very segregated experience. And I don't believe that that's what God intended mm -hmm. or that's what Dr. King hoped for. Mm -hmm. And so I think it encourages my heart to say that we're gonna try. We may fail more than we succeed, but we're mm. just going to succeed, and we're just going to keep doing it, yeah. and we're going to be okay. Mm. Yeah, right? Um, one of the th <laughs> all right, that's good. That, bring it. Come on now. I, um, one of the things I think w one lesson that shows up in a lot of different places for the followers of Jesus is that um, the unnatural or difficult places we get called to are actually the places where we're most able to discover the gospel again, right? So like this might be one of those examples where it would be, we could put the church on cruise control and we would probably a year from now, five years from now, be as monocultural as we are today. You know, it'd be easy to get there. We, we might grow, we might have a ton of people, I don't know, but it would be um, easy to sort of accidentally get there. But we have to kind of intentionally focus on this. And it seems like whenever God stirs us up to intentionally focus like that, um, there's something for us to learn about the gospel, you know? I, um, I was reading uh, some, some commentary from a black preacher recently who said that one of the reasons there's a big disconnect among, among Christians about the moment we're living in right now with race and, and, and all the struggle that we're feeling right now is he said white Christians grew up understanding the gospel through Paul, the writer of the letters in the New Testament. And he said a lot of black Christians grew up understanding the gospel through Moses in the Exodus. 
I'm wondering, um, I, had, I hadn't brought that up with you before. Does that resonate with you? Is there any connection there for you? There is, actually, now that, you think, now that I think about it, if um, for no other reason that one of the sheroes in African-American history is um, Harriet Tubman, who was known mm. as the Moses of her people, right. who helped um, hundreds of thousands of slaves on the Underground um, Railroad. And so, yes, we do actually think about often in black churches, there's the, there is the sermon, it's the some glad morning, we will get to the promised land. Mm. We will, again, Dr. King's words, we will make it to the promised land together. Mm. And so there is this sort of experience of the blissful place in the great beyond. We may not get it here, mm. but there is a hope and glory that mm. we will get at some point. Preach. <laughs> okay, see, you know, black church coming out, and we're like, okay now, <laughs> yeah. doing this since I was five. <laughs> yeah, so when I hear that, I get so excited because, like, I think this is just one of the ways that our church is going to be better for trying to reach out and trying to humble, humble ourselves and learn a little bit. Because, like, it, it seems like so often in, like, American church, maybe, maybe white church, one of the things we're resisting as a church is the way the gospel gets made narrow. And one of the ways it gets narrow, depending on what preachers you listen to or whatever, one of the ways it gets made narrow is it's, it's explicitly and it's only about you've got a personal guilt problem and you and God have got to resolve that through the cross. And I'm not, I'm not excluding that by any means, but when it gets reduced just to that and it doesn't also include this good news about like freedom from slavery and leading us into a better, more beautiful world, like I think we miss out on what the Bible is actually telling us about what God's doing in Jesus. And just to like make my case, when I read that preacher talking about that, it struck me in the gospels, you know, when Jesus dies on the cross, that happens on or around a certain Jewish holiday. Anybody know what the holiday is? Passover. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> Passover. So here's what I'm thinking. You're God, and theoretically, you can kind of like work with the situation and orchestrate the death of your beloved son, and there's all this meaning wrapped up in the context around it, right? And I'm thinking, if I'm God, and I want the death of Jesus to just explicitly and narrowly focus on the need for your guilt to be taken away, there's a holiday for that in the Jewish calendar, and it's not Passover. It's Yom Kippur, which is another day every year for the Jews when they celebrate the atonement with God and the taking away of their sin. And I'm not saying that's not going on. Of course it's going on. But there's also the promise of God leading us into a new and beautiful future where the world gets put to back, back together in the promised land. That's Passover. That's what God does when he leads them out of Exodus and into their freedom and I, I, I kind of wonder, what I'm getting at here is like, if we're going to hear the gospel more fully and more beautifully because we're listening to voices like yours and not just voices like mine. That's what I'm trying to drive at here. So thank you, Angela. Absolutely. Let me, let me well, one more thing, one more thing before we, before we transition here. Um, open floor. Our church says we want to be diverse like the city. We want to live out the gospel in that way. And you've been sitting around in our community for, for months hearing that talked about. I'm sure you've got a few things you want to say to us, just like anything you want to challenge us with, encourage us with, convict us with, blind spot you want to draw our attention to, or hopeful sort of thing that you've seen. You've you got open floor. What do, you, what do you want to say to our church? So the first thing I would suggest and encourage is that after we leave here tonight, tomorrow, sometime, but I want to challenge each of us between now and next Wednesday, have a meal with someone of a different background than you. Hmm. 
because you can actually learn more about people in their five, you need to know more about people in their five to nine worlds than you do about their nine to five worlds. How many of us will readily admit that we are in pretty diverse work environments, relatively speaking? Y'all, call and response. I'm gonna need that. Th thank you. Some hands. Okay. And of those of you who raised your hands, this one I'm not gonna put you on the spot of. How many of you have had a meal outside of the workplace with one of your coworkers? Or when was the last time you invited a coworker over for dinner? Yeah, okay, me too. So, <laughs> like, no, tell the truth and shame the devil. Okay. And so, <laughs> see, black church moment there. And so, opportunities to get to know each other can't happen in our nine to five because we're doing the nine to five-ness and there's no time to get to know people mm. for who they are as people. Mm. So we can get there as a church community, but we have to get there as individuals because I can't expect us to have a diverse, rich, multi-ethnic, multi-racial community of faith if we don't have multi-ethnic, multi-racial communities in our own homes. So that's one thing that I would encourage us all to do mm. is to have some, have, break bread with someone of a different background than you. Mm. And you can tell them that Dr. Logan said to, and then like, when you say you, it's doctor's orders, then people get suddenly <laughs> sit up straight for that one. So that's one thing that I would encourage us to do. And then also, as you have those conversations, find out more about people's backgrounds and experiences. We um, tend to think that if you come from a certain racial or ethnic background, you have this one sort of monolithic experience mm. because of something you saw on television or in a movie or something. So I may not be the typical African-American experience that you're accustomed to because not every day that you run into a PhD from IU who's a professor at Notre Dame, but at the same time, I'm not atypical of a black experience. So there's a wide variety of African-American experiences, Hispanic Latino experiences, Asian American experiences, um, Native American experiences. Learn people more than just the stereotype. Yeah. Because we have very interesting, deep, rich lives. For instance, I noticed on there that um, Ryan had some references, yeah. and if you follow my Twitter feed, you will see that I am a very, have a very interesting Twitter follow. I'm just as easy to share a quote from Dr. King as to question the uh, GM of the Colts as to why he does not give Andrew <laughs> Luck an offensive line. I'm just saying. And so that is just a different kind of experience. You probably wouldn't expect me to question um, Ryan Grigson in my Twitter feed because most of you wouldn't even think that I knew who that was. So there you go. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, Angela, we're so grateful. Thank you. I mean, not just for this moment, but thanks for your voice in our community, your leadership. And um, honestly, I'd say showing our community a lot of grace, since this is an area where we're not living up, but we're going to grow into it together. And I'm so glad that you're here to be a part of that. You guys want to thank uh, Dr. Logan? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Angela talked about, uh, you know, have a meal with someone. I love that for many reasons. One being that um, I know a church becomes what it becomes out of this kind of weird, like, back and forth between, like, staffing and structures and programmed events, right, and the everyday life of the people who call it their church. And these two things sort of, like, go back and forth, like ping pong, you know? And so the everyday life of everybody who calls South Bend City Church their church will shape what happens kind of at the center here, right? And then at the center where we have staff, leaders, and programming, all that's going to shape 
our lives that we go out and live. And there's just kind of this back and forth routine going on. And on the staff side, I'll tell you, we spend hours on this. We, we have meetings. We bring in uh, voices. Like I saw Edgar back there, Edgar Cabello or Angela, people who are helping us think about diversity in our church who have more wisdom. So we're doing that at the center and trying to use opportunities like this. But this is just one more area where everybody who calls South and City Church their church has some ownership. And it may not feel connected, but just whether you're living a life that is proactively reaching out to people who are different from you, that will ultimately affect this church. It'll make a huge difference over time. You know, maybe not overnight. Like, you don't, you don't have to, like, look for the first black person at your workplace, take them to lunch once, and then put a postcard in their hand to get them here so we're more diverse. I'm not, I'm not proposing that, right? But I'm saying that, like, authentic relationships with people who are different from us, that will change this church and make it way better. So I love that challenge. Thank you, Angela. And then she mentioned that Ryan included, Ryan Yazel on our team, he did a little bit of research and some work to create just a short list. It's like, what if you just want to listen a little better? What if in your everyday life you want to pay more attention, whether it's on Twitter or in the books that you read? Here's just a few starting points, a few great opportunities. You've got local voices like Angela, and uh, you've got the South Bend Advocacy for Latino Families with La Casa de Amistad. On a national level, you've got ways to connect with Latino voices, black voices, uh, activists for racial justice, other pr pastors, sort of theological voices that are in that space. Also, Arab Americans. I mean, I think right now we live in a time in America where we also need to be really sensitive to safety and inclusion and welcoming for uh, Arab Americans, and, or just Arabs who are even American but happen to be here for a season, right? Um, books, and then some disclaimers, which is like, wouldn't like go through every single tweet and every word of every book to make sure everything there is perfectly endorsed by the church because you're all adults and we think that we could all learn without that need, right? So, um, so hopefully that helps you guys there. Um, guys, I'm so uh, moved and excited at what we're a part of here. Um, as, we, as we work on location in the city, we're very close to getting to announce the opportunity to land permanently in a location in South Bend that will give us real proximity to a lot of diverse populations in our city, like in the neighborhood. That'll be really, really good for us. There's just a lot sort of uh, building up behind the scenes that's about to break forward. Um, but more than anything, I'm grateful for you and the spirit that you bring to this, like the open-heartedness, the willingness. Um, you guys move me so much just to see that every week. Um, so let's do this. Uh, maybe let's end tonight with a benediction. If you would, you want to stand to your feet? Let me remind you, uh, we'd love to hang out after. The bar will open up. There'll be food over in the corner over there. And we've got this place till 11. And if you've been here more than once, what's the rule? I know it's kind of hard to say out loud because I say it differently every time. <laughs> you know the rule. If you've been here more than once, you're a greeter, right? Yeah, and we're looking for anybody who looks like they may be looking for a friend here. Uh, a bunch of us share ownership to make this a welcoming place. So uh, that being said, uh, this benediction is just um, a word of blessing for our community today. May you discover the gospel that is way, way bigger than you ever imagined. That the good news breaks into your heart and from your heart flows into the world. May you discover that God's kingdom is bigger and better than you ever imagined and that we are invited into it. And may South Bend City Church be a community of grace and peace for our city and the world. In Jesus' name we pray it, and grace and peace be with you, my friends. Amen.